passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rewind the dynamite from the post-wrestling site. A-E-W, lighting up the fuse. Sit back and enjoy the bubbly. As we hear from John and Waiting. Where we're going, we don't need roads. And if the bug stops here, this thing might blow. Everything you hear, opinions of the show. And if you don't like it, go to the forums and let them know. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Rewind to Dynamite. John Pollock here alongside Wei Ting on tonight's Lights On sanctioned edition of Rewind to Dynamite. How are you? The lights are on, yes. This yeah. is this will count towards our um our record. Re- record, yes. This show. Our podcast record. Are we are we undefeated? I think so. Um against who though? Life. Undefeated against life? Sure, why not? Sounds good to me. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's a weird time, sure, for sure, uh, for for many reasons. But I guess maybe like you know, last night was um, maybe especially more weird than than some of the other days um, with with a lot of current events. But uh, I'm doing fine overall. Yeah, I I think off the top we should obviously mention our our thoughts with the the victims of this horrific attack in Atlanta. It's um you know, it's a really awful I don't even want to say trend. Like it is I heard the stat today that violence against Asian Americans, I believe this is a US stat, is up 150% over the last year and it just um Hard to uh, look at anything else after just hearing that news today and just how horrible it is and people's reaction. It seems to be this was an eye-opener maybe that this has caught people's attention of how awful that this has become. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that I think has been um, definitely, you know, uh, brewing. I don't even want to say brewing. It's already been out there, but I don't think it's been receiving like the mainstream coverage. That I, that's it, what I think. Is, this is something that forces people to confront this, but it's certainly not something that has just begun. This has been happening a lot mm-hmm. over this past year. Yeah. And I'll say personally for me, I am extremely grateful that I have a job that allows me to stay at home most of the time away from society. But not only that, I happen to live in a place that I like to think is quite tolerant of multiculturalism. It's a place that has, you know, a big Asian population. Uh, so for that reason, I'm extremely grateful. And But I'm not discounting the fact that, you know, that should exist here as well. Uh, but I also think about the people who have it way worse than me, who don't live in such a tolerant place and who have to go through this in a much more scarier level than I, I, I myself do. Um, so 
you know, for those reasons, I, I think it's just really important to shed light on, on that. But, you know, what happened yesterday was was not, um, you know, just, I think, a, a story about um, anti-Asian, Asian-American Pacific Islander uh, hate crime, but, you know, a story about um, anti-sex worker hate crime and uh, a mental health issue as well. So it's it's important to... Like it's a cross section between all these things, and and you know, if we can get any sort of positivity out of it, it's it's the fact that we can maybe talk about these things a bit more and um, take these matters a bit more seriously. Well, I think the fact that you have to rely on the fact you have a job that you don't have to leave your house that often, I think that speaks volumes to the level of uh, how atrocious that is that you have to yeah. think that way. Oh, absolutely, and I mean it's. Maybe maybe I can stay at home, but you know my fiance certainly doesn't have that privilege. Um, my parents, you know, going to go to the supermarket. Like these are concerns that I have to have now every time that they. And there are up. plenty of stories of like elderly people being attacked. Yes. Um, like you, you condone all violence, but against elderly people, on top of it, I'm sorry. There's no less cowardly, or sorry, no more cowardly act than that uh, to me. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you saying that, John. And uh, you know, it's uh it's it's something I hope people are paying a bit more attention to. And if they see instances of this violence happening, obviously please do something about it. If you hear somebody refer to this thing one more time as the fucking Chinese flu or the Kung Kung flu, whatever you want to call it, this shit is directly contributing to these crimes. So if you hear people talk about shit like that, use that type of language, please say something. Um, you know, uh, just as a favor, um, it's at, at all levels, I, w- I would say just to, it's, it's not just when you hear things like that spewed out in the most extreme case and it's attached with violence. It's when like, it's uncomfortable if you have people around you that might just make a lighthearted joke about that. Like that is just kind of making all this stuff just, oh, it's just joking around. Well, there are real consequences when this is kind of just repeated and suddenly it permeates to people that take this stuff to heart and act out on these irrational uh, conclusions and are taking it out on people. It's, I don't know. I I just look at it that there's lots to learn from uh, of all of this and not just simply shrugging your shoulders and not wanting to be confrontational. I'm someone that I, I don't like to be the confrontational one, but I think that it kind of forces you to have to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're still in a, in a pandemic and uh, something that that's really spoken to me is just how for a lot of people it's, you know, it's been a time of growth and I like to take an opportunity like this as, you know, another reason to, to learn and to grow and to see these terrible things, things that are happening and try to understand how we can prevent them in the future. So, uh, reflection really. Well, I did want to start off, uh, talking about that. So I am, I am glad we addressed it. And again, our thoughts are with, uh, the, the victims of the eight people that lost their lives, uh, completely, uh, senselessly. It's, it's a tragedy. Um, but we are going to be talking about tonight's episode of uh, Dynamite, uh, a big main event uh, that they presented. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we can mention uh, what is coming up the next couple of days. And on Thursday, 
It is the return of the wellness policy. Way is going to be joined by Jordan Goodman, and this will be live Thursday at 3 Eastern for all patrons. And this month, you guys are going to be going deep into meditation. Is this accurate? Yes, it is. Yes, it is the third edition of the wellness policy. And uh, I think, you know, something that uh, I've I've felt is there's an interest in people trying to think of ways to perhaps manage uh, stress that's going on right now and just really uh, anything that's been affecting, um, I think, our mental state. And I've always been curious in meditation. Jordan is somebody who has had plenty of experience with meditation so we're going to take this time to talk about it so that we can learn a bit about it. And in fact, Jordan will actually be helping us lead a brief guided uh, drum-based meditation. So I'm looking forward to all that. I'm more, most looking forward to hearing about our audience's experiences with meditation because I think a lot of people have had it. A lot of people might have questions about what it is. I have questions about what it really is. So we'll be taking that time Thursday, 3 p.m., uh, open to all post wrestling cafe patrons live on zoom to have that discussion and uh, if you are not a post wrestling cafe patron don't worry because the show will be released for free on friday morning then friday night way and i will be back with rewind to smackdown that will be live for all patrons at 10 15 15 minutes after smackdown concludes saturday it is actually thursday i have skipped over we also have a bonus British Wrestling Experience, a roundtable edition with Martin Bushby, Nate Milton, and Chris from L.A. As they will be chatting the career of one Sting. So that should be uh, that should be great. And it is the the week of Nate Milton because on Saturday he will be back with the Rocky Maivia Picture Show reviewing Moana, which would be which would be the the Dwayne Johnson film I have probably seen more than any other Dwayne Johnson films. I don't doubt that, and I'm, I'm assuming much of that is due to your, uh, well, your own personal interest, of course, but probably your son's as well. I, I had never seen this movie until the last uh, three years, but uh, yes, I, I've seen this movie. I, I should say I have more so heard the soundtrack than I have actually seen the movie. That soundtrack is, that's in my brain. I never I never thought that here I would be listening to children's uh, albums sung by Dwayne Johnson. But here we are. What what better combination? I mean, you thought the Tooth Fairy was the extent of your uh, Dwayne Johnson kid film knowledge, but you were wrong. It, it goes much deeper. So uh, on that note, uh, if you want to pick up a Rocky Maivia picture T-shirt, there's a special sale going on through Monday night at midnight Eastern for all patrons where you can get seven bucks off this shirt. Why seven bucks, Way? Because in 1995... The Rock had seven bucks in his wallet. And now the man is filthy, filthy rich. That is the direct quote from uh, something like that, from Dwayne Johnson himself. So we're allowing you to keep these seven bucks, uh, really just because we wanted to give a nice little discount. And, you know, originally I was like, let's give $5 off. But like seven just was too perfect. So here, you know, we're sacrificing the extra dollars just to um, make it a bit of a more memorable discount so seven dollars off for all patrons until monday evening uh and then also coming up this weekend we've got the the premiere the worldwide premiere of the falcon and the winter soldier podcast named to be determined with Wei ting and wh park Wei just no days off as we will be uh lunging into leaving one marvel series and into the next this weekend 
Well, thankfully, it's about something I'm really enjoying talking about. WandaVision was a blast, and uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier is something I'm looking forward to just as much, if not even more. So me and WH will be covering the first episode on Saturday evening slash uh, Sunday morning, and that podcast will be available for all patrons. Maybe we'll even throw a bit of a Justice League standard cut discussion in there, too. I don't know how WH feels about the DC universe, but uh, maybe we'll get a bit of that discussion in there, too. Are you going to watch this, John? Oh, I've already watched it a few times. It's uh, amazing. I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna watch the two side by side to see. It's where, a four-hour thing. Yeah. Well, I'll see when the overlap stops and see where the extra footage has come in, and I'll uh, I'll take notes for that. I will never watch this thing. I will never watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's four hours. I don't know how I'm gonna find time. How how old's the, or how long is the original? I think under two. Oh my god, that that, that much is cut out. So. Oh, plus they shot, like, new footage for it and everything. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> uh, and then Sunday night, Fast Lane Post Show with myself and Way will be live right after the pay-per-view. If you're a double-double ice cap or espresso patron, you can listen and watch just as the whole Zoom room is right now as we speak. So thanks to all for joining us live as we do after every show. Uh, you know what? Maybe next on my priority after the standard cut, fast lane. Yeah, it's gonna well, be great. Yeah, that's a maybe. Maybe they they have to come out with like the uncut version of Raw every week. What what didn't make Ooh. the uh, what landed on the cutting room floor? All the ideas. We'll shoot all the concepts that were thrown out. I'm surprised SNL hasn't done that for like mm-hmm. sketches that got turned down that at the end of the season, they just do all the sketches that got turned down and put it out as like a bonus. Now, why are, why are we not clamoring for like director's cuts of like pro wrestling programming? No, can you imagine like the Heyman cut of WWE Raw from 2020? The, uh, <laughs> the Russo cut of, uh, I don't know what he would have done for, uh, for certain periods of wrestling. I'm sure you can find exceptions that you would, that I personally would find interesting that, oh my God, there's an hour more of this. But by and large, I want to see like the best part of what you had to create. I don't want all the fat that you deemed not good enough or bogged down the story. So it would have to be something incredible that I, I, I just want so much more of because I'll take the 90 minute final cut over the three hour warts and all version. You want, the, you want the you want the director's cut that cuts it down to ten minutes. Be be considerate of the fact that I am giving you my time. Yes, that is what I want. Give me give me this story in as efficient a way as possible. If you can do it in an hour, I don't need ninety. I think we should call it the Pollock cut. Wow. It'll be like three hours of raw, dwindled down gonna, to three I mean, minutes. I mean, I'm adding this Chrome extension that you have uh, handed over to me. It might be a that's life changer a, here. That's a secret that between you, me, and John Cena. Well, yeah, it's we're we're, we're quickly learning the secrets of uh, John Cena and how he can watch so much. Uh, but let's move on over to some news items. Uh, all of this can be found at postwrestling.com. That's right. Way on. We are perfectly on time for our news update. The Tampa Bay Times uh, put out a report today with, well, we'll start with WWE announcing that WrestleMania tickets are going to go on sale Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern, but they're doing an internet pre-sale on Thursday at 10 a.m. 
So looking to do the deal where they can sell a ton of tickets on Thursday and then have a quick sellout on Friday. We will see if that's going to happen because now we know what the capacity is. This comes from the Tampa Bay Times that WrestleMania is now being scaled for 25,000 seats per night. Uh, This down from uh, the original reports we had seen of 45,000 per night. And I think you can uh, assume that this led to the the halting of the on sale earlier this week that they have now scaled things down. They are going with less people than originally planned for. And that would be about 36% of the capacity of Raymond James stadium. The Tampa Bay times report also states that safety protocols will include seating pods, social distancing masks that have to be worn at all times, temperature checks, health screenings, cashless concessions, and mobile ticketing. And they will also be providing free masks uh, upon entry into the building. So number one, um, I will say this. If I was somebody in Florida, uh, I feel I would probably be on the extreme side of most people. I don't think I would be going to WrestleMania. Actually, I would not be going to WrestleMania. I probably with Dynamite, I I just wouldn't, but I would feel most safe probably going to a Dynamite given the success they have had with fans. I damn sure would not be going within the radius of the UFC event next month. But we kind of have the three examples here. I will say, I think that WrestleMania feels like a much more safer um environment to be in from the Outdoors, the limited capacity, outdoors, it's outdoors, and it's outdoors uh, compared to UFC next month. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, we we know that the Super Bowl held, what, 30 It was just, it was um, less people, but it also, in, they operated at 38% capacity, but that also had 7,500 healthcare workers that were vaccinated uh, there. So uh, this will be... Slightly less capacity, um, okay. given that they're at 36% to 38%, but not. But we saw how the Super Bowl in the same venue operated and largely went like with, without a hitch. We have not heard of any significant issues coming out of that. So mm-hmm. the fact that they are on pace even a little less in the capacity, um, I mean, th- this feels like an event that I, I think if, if I was someone that did not have a family, I think I'd have a much different approach to a lot of this. Um, if it was just me and I was living by myself, but going to WrestleMania in that sense, like I would look at it as, yeah, there is some risk involved, but I would, I would not feel like this is extremely dangerous. I'm not getting the sense from, you know, hearing this, that they are trying to break any records here, trying to overextend perhaps, you know, like uh, what, what they're allowed. And seemingly in, in Florida, it seems like they probably could have packed this thing if they wanted to. It seems like they're still being conservative and putting safety first, which is uh, like, I mean, if I'm a consumer, that's the number one thing I'm thinking about. And let's give them credit because we know what the UFC can do in Florida. Yeah. This is not this stuff being put, thrust upon WWE. This it's sad be... that the UFC and Dana White is sort of the bar like we're, we're setting after like the well, I'm, All it is is to say is that WWE it sounds like they have the run of the place. They could do 100% capacity if they wanted to. They are not doing that. And in fact, from their original plans, they have, it sounds like, scaled it down by 20,000 people per night. So I think that they do deserve credit here that they are going more cautious than 
as of a week ago, they were they were going to be doing this. So I mm-hmm. think that if you were someone going to WrestleMania, I think, yes, you could have your concerns, but I don't think they are. I, I don't think this is outrageous at all. It's it's always going to be up to the individual to you know take a risk. I mean, we we take risks like at this point in doing anything that we choose to do. Uh, so it's up to the comfort level of the individual. Um, but I I can't like I'm kind of looking at this and there, to me the, like I'm not very critical of anything that WWE is put in place here. Yeah, so I think the fact that this is out, I think that would give you you know if someone if you were on the fence about going, I think this is somewhat uh, reassuring. Uh, this information now. 25,000 seats per night. Uh, the tickets will be going on sale, well, officially Friday, but the pre-sale's Thursday. Um, what is your expectation in terms of filling 50,000 people over two nights? What do you think the uh, likelihood of them hitting that number is? I still think it's highly likely. Um, I, You know, this is unprecedented for pro wrestling, certainly. Like, we've this will be the biggest event for pro wrestling in North America since the pandemic began. Um, so I, 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 you know, how big is that market that, you know, at this point, I don't know how many people will be traveling, like flying in, but I'm sure like, what, there will two, be some. Weeks out? Yeah, for sure. Not from overseas, or at least probably kept to a very small minimum. If, if it, it would case. be a small number. I, I, I think there will be some that will do that and will go through the quarantine period. It will not, I, I think it's a small number. I could see some people from Canada going down for this and they are, willing to do the two weeks after. I mean, it all depends on your, your life circumstance. If you don't have to be back at a job or you have whatever, you have that freedom to do so. It's it's going to be a small number, but I do expect that there will be some that will go to those lengths to attend a WrestleMania. Because, you know, this is like in many ways for many people, the first event that they'll have a chance to go to, or are you going to want to go to since the pandemic began? Uh, you have all that pent up uh, frustration or demand for for something like this. I think they won't have much trouble selling out. I think days. they're going to do very well. I I won't say for sure they're going to sell out because it's just it's too hard to know what the what 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 people they're drawing from within the country. But I think they're going to do really well. Selling out is not going to stun me, especially at this more scaled down uh, forty five thousand per night. That one I would be. I don't know. I don't know if the the, the demand would, would, would fit so, that. But this you know, seems very much reasonable to hit. So the other question I have, you know, provided that they do sell out, what do you think they do next year? Do you think they stick to one night or do you think they go to two, keep it at two nights? I think they stay at one just because, I mean, AT&T Stadium is gigantic. Uh, I know the figure that they tout is 101,000. It's the, the people that went through the turnstiles. It was like 80,000. That That's still an enormous number. And I think that there's this 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 kind of belief that WrestleMania is this hot ticket every year that sells out automatically. There are many years WrestleMania does not sell out, and I think next year in Dallas, that is way too big a venue to run twice. So I'm I'm going to think that they stick to the one night at AT and T Stadium. Um, but even if they don't sell out, even if they don't hit eighty thousand, like two nights of seventy thousand, sixty thousand, like would that still be better than? One night of 80? I, th- I just think you want to concentrate all your resources into the one night and not split it up. I'm not saying they can't. It's not out of the realm of possibility that they could do that. I just think with such a big building, you want to fill it. And I think you want to put all your eggs into that that one night and put all your stars there. It's it, It's also like you would need to have, to me, 
the two main events and know them a long time out. And, and I don't know, barring, you know, a, a verbal commitment by the rock to do WrestleMania next year. I don't think they're going to have that or necessarily have the attraction that could draw even 50,000 both nights beyond the name of WrestleMania. So I, I'm going to say unlikely of two nights next year, but this, this you, is see, you seem more open to it. I mean, I, you know, I'm just kind of talking, you know, for, for discussion's sake. I mean, another interesting thing is that they aren't really revealing which, what, what's going to main event what night. You know, you somebody buying a ticket is going to kind of blindly have to choose between the Saturday or the Sunday. Yeah, that's a great the- point for this year. Like, we didn't have that problem last year of fans having to decide what night they're going to go to. You had no fans. For this year, off- more often, though, like the ticket on sales are so early that you some cases don't even know what the main events are anyway. Well, but this year you do have a main event in mind and you don't know if you're going to be paying for it. Well, this is also I, I don't know how much people are making decisions on going to WrestleMania based on a match. I think it's very much the the idea of finally going back to a wrestling show. It's also the biggest WWE show of the year. And I think that it, in a weird way, by not having any matches announced for either night, I think that might even push people that, hey, I'm going through this. I'm getting tickets for both nights. And I think that's their hope yeah. is that it's going to be a lot of crossover of people going to, to both nights. Um but yeah, I think certainly the Sunday people are going to psychologically believe is going to be the biggest uh, match. It's going to be safe for Sunday night. And then, you know, something's going to happen on Saturday. So it either pushes people to get both or I think they go for Sunday first. Right. So anyway, that'll be interesting to see what the uh, the demand is like over the next couple of days. Raw on Monday uh, did 1,843,000 viewers and a 0.56 in the demo. Uh, so th- this was a very interesting ratings pattern on, on Monday. Uh, the numbers themselves were not um, anything out of the norm uh, in the demo or viewership. But what you did have was in the key demo, it grew throughout the show from a 0.53 to a 5.6 to a 5.9 in the third hour. And in fact, four of the key demos uh, increased in hour number three. So there were several things I took away from this. Number one is that with hour two outperforming hour one, that that is a pattern we see most years following daylight savings time is that people are tuning in later than usual and the second hour ends up outdrawing the first hour. So you have that. But the fact you had so much growth in the third hour and- Hold on a second. Can you just explain that to me? Like, let's think about that. So, so people are just, their what is it? Their body clocks are just set to like tune in at a certain time and therefore they end up watching the second hour more. Not so they, much a body clock. It's they just forget to it, turn the clocks in their house and it's like, oh shit, it's eight o'clock. And then you tune in and it's actually nine. Okay. But what is the, what are the benefits of daylight savings time in the spring? Daylight. Exactly. You're more likely to be out longer in the day. I guess so. Does it happen instantaneously like that? It's listen, I looked at the numbers like this happens every year on the Monday after daylight savings time that the second hour outdoes the first one. And it's a reversal of what we see prior where the first hour is usually the big hour. So I mean, it's a theory that has uh, borne itself out. Um, But for this week, like we also had like they only lost 5% of their viewers over the course of the show. Um, The third hour held up very well. And if we're looking at the last three weeks, to me, the key has been Bobby Lashley challenging for the title, 
uh, defending the title and had that great first hour last week. And this week, the only thing you had in that third hour was the promise of Lashley and Sheamus. And I think that you have to look at, not to say that Bobby Lashley is this uh, ratings juggernaut, but to me, he has been the difference over these three weeks. And I think that he deserves some credit here that he is a fresh champion. He was a really well-built-up champion. And I think people are into seeing a fresh face holding that that title as well. So three weeks in, I think that the the timing was right for Lashley to win this title. And I think that if you see this pattern continue throughout the build-up to Mania and all indications of that numbers should be steady going into Mania, I think it presents an interesting question of keeping this title on Lashley. I would say if WrestleMania was um, coming up this weekend, I would... I, w- I would be hesitant to be taking the title off Lashley. I think you have a lot of legs with this guy as champion, not just as a heel, eventually as a babyface. I'm in. I'm in agreement. Um, you know, if it, at the onset of this whole thing, if you told me that it was going to be Lashley and Drew with Drew chasing, of course you do the Drew big, you know, celebration at the end of this WrestleMania. But seeing how I think several people, like several people on my timeline, have taken to this Lashley victory, and now you giving me these ratings to kind of back it up, I think they should continue it. And I would love it if they would cement Lashley's win at WrestleMania instead. I mean, we definitely have to credit him, but I think Drew in a chasing spot is much more compelling to me right now. So uh, I think it's it's a hot feud in a fresh feud heading into WrestleMania that that I'm interested in uh, seeing. Yeah. Uh, compared to last week, most of the demos were all like you, you didn't see too much fluctuation except for women 12 to 34. They were up 40% this week. It was one of their better uh, ratings in that department. And in Canada, the show did 182,100 viewers and 93,100 in the key demo in Canada of 25 to 54, which Way and I occupy. That's the or, key demo in Canada? In, in Canada, that's the big demo that is measured. Yes. What's the why? Do we not value our 18 to 24-year-olds as much? Do they not have as much spending power? Until until you're 25. That's when we take you seriously in this country. Wow. All right. That's when your purchasing power means something. Uh, Let's move on over to Impact Wrestling. So on Tuesday night, they announced that their next Impact Plus special is going to be Hardcore Justice on Saturday, April the 10th. And the idea for the show is that Tommy Dreamer will get to be commissioner for one night and is booking the show. Now, what was interesting is that they did not announce a start time for this event. Saturday, April 10th is the first night of WrestleMania. So I did inquire today and I asked a spokesperson for Impact who got back to me and told me the start time would be 8 p.m. Eastern, which would put it head to head with WrestleMania. Later in the day, I heard from a separate person at Impact who informed me that they are discussing other options. So it doesn't look like a time is nailed down. I heard one of the ideas was maybe running the show at noon, but that is not confirmed yet. So uh, they have not officially announced what the start time is. I think we can both agree that running that special against WrestleMania would be the worst time to run a streaming special. Yes, I think that would like I can't think of a worse time to hold a wrestling pay-per-view in the entire calendar year than those particular few hours. And maybe granted, like when they booked this thing, maybe they didn't realize it was going to be a two-day event. Um, but to announce it now and without realizing it, now, now that we've had several weeks of this WrestleMania two-day announcement, that would be really strange. Um, I think noon would be great. Like would I, you know, conversely, like noon, the day of WrestleMania would actually be a perfect. It's time. a great weekend to run. Like you yes. have an audience that is very captive. 
except for those hours. Like if there ever is a time period that even your most uh, jaded WWE fan is going to tune into, it's it's during the actual time of WrestleMania. So just run it earlier. And I think that it's it's a great weekend to run a special like for Impact. Um, Promote it hard. I think it's a I think it's a great weekend to run a show. It's the same theory as what, what's what been happening with every single WrestleMania weekend locally, it, whenever WrestleMania is in town. The world's attention and the world's, like, um, set, you know, thirst at that moment is for more and more and more wrestling. Coverage is going to be, you know, at a new level in terms of, like, press, l- l- seeing what every company has to offer. Um, the only difference is we... We nobody runs against WrestleMania. Maybe you have a smaller show, smaller indie here and there running against WrestleMania because there's no other spot for them to run. But we're talking about an eye pay per view here where you know, it, like, no one's going to be paying attention to your show at eight o'clock on a, on a Saturday. So I hope they run, I hope they change this thing. Uh, on that note, um, so Rebellion is happening on April 24th, and it's the same night as this UFC 261 card in Jacksonville. And prior to this week's announcement, I wouldn't have even bothered thinking about, like, it's two shows they're running. It's not, to me, something that you would adjust anything over. But given how much more attention this UFC card is going to get, and you have added Kamaru Usman and Jorge Masvidal, who did about 900,000 buys for their fight last July... Do you, given that it, Rebellion is running the biggest match they can possibly promote, do you think that that is going to have any conflict? Do you think that running against a, what could be a giant UFC event uh, could could affect the Impact Rebellion number? Or do you think that it is Impact is so niche, even with a big Kenny Omega match, that it's not something to overly focus on? In most cases, if this was a typical impact show, I would say, who cares? Like, you're catering these shows really to your most diehard audience anyway. But this is a show with a Kenny Omega headlining event that, you know... Should be the most purchased of the Anthem era. It should be. Yeah. And and it's your one biggest attempt to cross people over into sampling one of your paid shows. And for that reason, I think... Maybe you think about moving, you know, even with like, I, I think you just move it up, do the pay-per-view instead of eight, do it at seven and you're done by 10 when the pay-per-view starts. That would be my suggestion. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I think that would be satisfying. I Causes mean, the if, least amount of like moving around your schedule, just bump it up an hour. So, and well, so that said the potential overlap, if they do start at eight would be what one hour between the UFC real, like the full, the, the main card and the end of the show. Yeah. I mean, the card would be. Should be done by 11. Yeah. So, I mean, you wouldn't be missing the main event. I just I just looked at once you're overlapping into the pay-per-view, like that that person is making a decision, I think, that night on what show they're purchasing. Potentially. You know, I wonder if there is that research that exists out there between like Kenny Omega fans and like UFC fans. Um, I imagine it would well, probably Well, it's enough that good. AEW didn't want to run against uh, UFC last weekend and they moved it to Sunday. So, yeah. I mean, for, for an AEW audience, they felt e- even if it was a small percentage, it was enough that we're not going to run that same night. And they were smart to do that. Impact, you're talking a much lower number. But again, it's how big could this number be? And you're running on a night where it's e- even to me, if it was five to 10 percent, I, I don't know if I would want to squander that. I would like this is your biggest pay-per-view you can promote uh, unless you have a bigger match involving Kenny Omega beyond this. Yeah, well, what do you lose by moving it up to seven? I don't think anything. That would that would be what I would do. 
Um, but we will see. It's uh, currently scheduled for 8 o'clock Eastern next month on that night, April 24th. All your latest news can be found at postwrestling.com, including uh, some quotes from Paul White, quite the interesting interview with uh, Chris Jericho of how he nearly teamed with John Cena and Justin Bieber against the Wyatt family at SummerSlam a few years ago. How we were robbed of that match. Yeah, I'm surprised Bieber hasn't made his way to a wrestling ring, although he will be performing a thriller, won't he? Yes, he will be. Um, this this thriller event way, uh, I really hope that you're going to end up watching it. I <laughs> So I have now made sure I reached out to the PR person at Triller to make sure that I am on their their contact list for all all press releases. I want to be all up to speed as they announced live performances from Justin Bieber, The Black Keys, Diplo, Major Lazer, and the first ever performance and world premiere of hip-hop supergroup Mount Westmore, consisting of Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube, E-40, and Too Short. That sounds amazing. It's worth the price of admission alone. And I'm getting, what is this, uh, Jake or Logan? This is, uh, this is Jake Paul. Jake Paul. Wow. As long as you give me Snoop on commentary. And, and Mason the Line Dixon versus Frank Muir. That's right. All right, let's move on over to tonight's edition of Dynamite. A taped edition, but uh, a lot on this episode. It started with MJF and company getting off of a private jet earlier in the day. And we have got the St. Patrick's Day Slam edition of Dynamite, which meant um, everyone was wearing green t-shirts and we had quite the decoration on the broadcasters area. What the hell is this? It's like green glitter? This was uh, someone was in charge of going to the nearest uh, Dollarama and get the greenest thing you have at the dollar (laughs) store. This is like a green, like, like a boa or something. Just like, um, yeah, like tinsel or something. Like a green extra large dress, just like on the table. It's how people celebrate uh, St. Patrick's Day. I like the attempt to at least theme this show. It's uh, This one was a bit of a stretch, um, but hey, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Penta El Zero Miedo versus Cody Rhodes was our first match. And we had a promo from my favorite translator right now, Alex Abrahantis. I really enjoy this guy with Pentagon. I think that this is this is what Pentagon was missing. This guy Certainly. is so – he's got such a smug look in all of his translations. I think it's great. And he translated here stating that Penta is going to break Cody's arm so badly he'll need to take an early paternity leave. You know, I always thought like um, backstage reporters should remain unbiased and impartial. Um, this guy at this point, he's basically be, being like a – you know – uh, for higher mouthpiece for Penta, and it's working. We're getting so much of Penta's personality in these couple weeks simply through something like this. Penta gets to speak a little himself. Um, it's making him such a more well-formed character than what he was before. So they had a really good match. Penta was uh, just dove on to Cody at the beginning. Uh, Cody ate all of these chops, and then uh, Penta leaped out of the corner into this backstabber. Uh, they fought onto the top, and Cody hit this huge top rope Hurricane Rana, uh, like 
with Penta standing on the top turnbuckle. It was very impressive. Penta then kicked away at the injured shoulder. Cody came back with the disaster kick and a suicide dive onto a guardrail, which was propped up against the other rails. Cody hit a Canadian destroyer, followed by a Cody cutter. Penta kicks out. Then he hits the crossroads and Penta kicks out. Arn Anderson is in disbelief. So then Cody digs deep. He goes for Din's fire, the vertebraker. Yet another kick out from Penta. And then he rams Penta's knee into the post, applies the figure four. Penta gets to the rope. Then he tries to reapply it, but Penta transitions out, gets into the Fujiwara armbar position and snaps the arm. But Cody recovers and just catches him with this sunset roll up and pins him in 10 minutes and 12 seconds. I thought the match was good. You know, they, in the way like Cody matches are usually good. They're very well paced. They usually tell pretty strong stories. Uh, I, I, I think the, you know, attack on the shoulder was really strong and the arm was really strong throughout. Um, they're not like spectacular in the way many AEW big matches are. And maybe that's what sometimes prevents them from maybe lasting in my head or being match of the night on a show like this. But they, I thought this was a very good match. I thought I thought it was really strong. Like this felt very much in the vein of like a John Cena U.S. Open Challenge style of match, where it's um, you know Cody in, in that kind of role. Um, and I guess the story is that Cody's shoulder is further damaged, and he needs to get this arm taken care of. But he's continuing to work through this. I think this was a way you could have had Penta actually win this match, but uh, they did go with Cody catching him at the end. But, I mean, Penta looked great in this. I mean, he got the kick out of everything in the kitchen sink from Cody. Yeah, you know, like that, that might have been kind of like the biggest point of debate coming out of this. You know, should Penta, who definitely is on sort of like an ascent, should he be losing at the moment? Uh, should Cody be losing at the moment? And it's debatable. But I think like they did enough here with this particular finish where Kenta retained his his value or sorry penta re- retained some value and and listen the other alternative would be a dq double dq double count out bullshit thing so i i'm happy we at least got somebody winning no i if i if i could have changed anything i i could have gone with the the arm snap immediately after the match instead of the precursor to cody winning um but that's a small thing penta continued to attack the shoulder when Dustin Rhodes and the Gun Club chased him off, Penta was out wearing this leprechaun hat, and Jim Ross is talking about the shoulder injury to Cody, and then QT Marshall comes out late, and they're asking where the hell he was continuing to push the dissension uh, with QT and the Nightmare family. So yeah, I, I thought a really good start to the show here, and uh, you know Penta getting to have a pretty big standout singles match that he hasn't had too many of. It was a big match in terms of star star power, I thought. You know, this was definitely a match you could have built up for a pay-per-view in the future. So, um, yeah, it felt like uh, uh, they were giving away something big here to start. And, and this Mar- QT Marshall thing, it's it's definitely a slow burn. I mean, you definitely know what's happening. You're just waiting for the big turn at the moment. But uh, they're taking their time with it. Alex Marvez spoke with the Young Bucks and... They're constantly pushing that Phoenix and Pack are the next to challenge the Young Bucks. So making that feel like a big match that they are building towards in the coming weeks. They refer to themselves as the best tag team in the world. And then Don Callis walks in. Did you happen to see Don Callis' promo on Impact with Rich Swan? 
Yes, I did. It was fantastic. It was really good stuff. Um, if you if you missed Impact, I would definitely recommend checking out that promo. They're uh, building that Omega Swan matchup uh, really well. I thought the promo was great. Callus hands them a T-shirt that reads, "Don't slap leg when kicking." <laughs> this this so, shirt is going to sell tremendously. So I'm guessing there might be some people who might not be be aware, but like this was a sign that was. Uh reportedly hung somewhere in the WWE backstage area. Yes, uh, in the gorilla position. Yeah, in reference to Vince no longer wanting people to slap their thighs when super kicking or doing any sort of kick. They made Just a shirt out of it. It's it's amazing on so many fronts. Number one, that that is a priority in WWE. Number two, that it's AEW that's going to end up making money off of this. Yes. You know, when I was... When I was like in grade six, okay, and my friends would always like at recess, we would do like wrestling moves on one another. And like that was – how old are you in grade six? 12? 11? Like Something that's like that, yeah. that's when I learned like the thigh slap and I did it to a friend as I was doing a super kick. And you know what happened? The people around me all looked over and they thought I had just clobbered this guy. I'm like this is like <laughs> the coolest thing what a great trick. You got a magic At 12. Power. At 12. It was like, <laughs> this is somehow a problem. Anyway. Um, <laughs> like, like I realized, I'm like, what a great idea. Like, this is how they do it. You know, Vince must have got wind of, like, from one of your high school or school schoolmates who was like, this guy did this and I got this big reaction. And he's probably like, well, if they're doing it in grade 12, I can't have my guys do it anymore. Oh, it's like, what a... Like that to me is like the the epitome of like an in the bubble criticism that has no bearing on your it's it's to me it represents a massive disconnect with your average viewer. Yes. That is not thinking about any of this or they don't care. He admits uh, Don Callis admits that he faked the eye injury and he wants to see the aggressive young bucks from New Japan. There's nothing elite about them anymore. They've killed their careers and let everyone else take credit for everything here. He admits he has changed Kenny Omega by elevating him, and Kenny no longer recognizes the Young Bucks, who are no longer elite. And they're living off their name and the past. He wants to see the Matt and Nick from New Japan and tells them to give it some thought. And Excalibur, just disgusted, calls Don Callis human garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, at this point, I felt like I kind of needed a bit of a refresher on where everybody stood in this program, because... I mean, last we saw with the Bucks, they were cool with Gallows and Anderson seconding them in that match at the pay-per-view. But we know that they have this thing with Callis. So Callis admits to faking the, the eye injury, right? And so you would think Omega knew, knows that. And Omega is okay with Callis faking this injury, I guess? Yes. Or am I asking too many questions? No, no. That's a fair question to ask. I think that... Uh, I guess the question is, is Kenny Omega um, you, is Kenny Omega in the dark here of what Don is doing with the Bucks? Or is this his plan that he is trying to get away from the Bucks and he's using Don Callis as the, the, the why guy would he to... Need, why would he need Callis to do that? He's Kenny Omega. You just say, like, fuck you and leave. He's, le he's leading them along, perhaps. Well, anyway, that's all to say that I think the refresher, thankfully, was to come later on in this show. We had a, more clear boundaries where everybody stood. 
Jade Cargill took on Danny Jordan in what would be Jade's first singles match, uh, as they really put over her as the star of the tag match from two weeks ago. Uh, mm. This was very simple. Pump kick, this huge release German that sent Danny Jordan flying, and then hit her finisher, uh, which is a glam slam that is called Jaded, and wins it in a minute 18, and then got into it ringside with Red Velvet as they had to be separated. Like the name of the finish? Jaded? Sure. Yeah. It's it's the obvious choice, I would say. It's kind of a hard name to call. It's like, she just hit Jaded. <laughs> it's not something that, she... you know, the or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, can we do better than that? She. <laughs> she. Um, Jade. No, I can't. I can't. No, I can't the, do that. The glam to slaughter. Glam? <laughs> yeah, I think they made the right choice, I guess. Anyway, Cargill, I mean, I they're keeping her appearances pretty limited in ring here, uh, but making her look dominant and emphasizing that incredibly strong physical presence that she, that she has, which is um, not something you can teach anybody. Like, you either just have it or you don't, and she clearly has it. So I was really impressed with her and the treatment they, they gave her here. I also think Red Velvet, even in the small interaction she had with Jade Cargill, um, continues to look really capable in this role. Um, it, I actually think she's a better choice for this role than Brandy was, uh, certainly from maybe an in-ring, maybe even a long-term perspective. I think they're both like really lucky to have one another as opponents, and I think both will rise up in this feud if handled well. Then we had highlights of the angle last week with the group forming to destroy the inner circle. And Excalibur brought up how last year we saw MJF and Sean Spears in the crowd gambling and pointed to that as the catalyst for all of this. The seating chart is to blame. Yeah, I like that. Like the MCU does this all the time. They'll like point to a past event that, of course, they would have no idea back then what they were going to do with it. But they can sound smart by saying, oh, we meant to do that. That was when we were sowing the seeds way back when. Yeah, that was the, you know, and that was Peter Parker who was in the Iron Man uh, helmet, you know, in Iron Man 3. Or they can tell you, oh, no, 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 no. All of that was just a misdirection. The name's Boner. <laughs> yeah, they could have done that too. Sure. I, I hated how that all ended, but stupid, let, let, right? let's not bleed into other things. Um, so the group comes out. They're all in suits. Tully Blanchard is the first to speak. He said the inner circle was the greatest group in AEW, but they were laid out. And this makes these guys the baddest group in AEW. Once you reach the top, there is no place to climb. They are at the pinnacle of the sport. 34 years ago, he was with the greatest group. And he's going to end his career with the greatest group in history. And then it became the MJF show. As he took over, he says, Chris, I guess I'm Judas now. He said for six months, he had to pretend to like Jericho, which was no walk in the park, which is something you could use, Chris. He had to take a back seat for the last six months and had to fall back as far as his hairline. And he says that separating Jericho and Sammy Guevara was as far as Jericho's left peck from his right one. 
And he thought, Chris believed that MJF was under his wing while I was underneath plucking you feather by feather. And everyone at home thought I was there to take over the inner circle. It was all a distraction for my larger goal to build a stronger group. Says Tully Blanchard is the greatest mind in the history of wrestling, and they are the pinnacle. And he goes member by member. Wardlow, the war dog, is the best big man in pro wrestling and the best insurance policy. Double S, the chairman, Sean Spears. He's been held down. He's always been a top guy. And those that disagree will eat their words and eat a chair shot. FTR, the only Grand Slam tag champions in pro wrestling history. Which is very heavily weighted towards their WWE tenure, I guess. Uh, And then puts over himself as unstoppable. After one year on television, I'm only 24 and I'm just getting better. I've got 25 plus years left in the tank. And when I'm done, Jericho won't be the goat. That role is reserved for me. I'm the backbone of AEW for years to come. We're going to take every title and we'll take whatever we want, including the inner circles locker room. And I haven't said this in six months. I'm better than you and you know it. Phenomenal promo. Phenomenal. Like in terms of ability, smoothness, like this was about as Ric Flair status of a promo as you could find for a stables introduction. I think this is one of the best stable introduction promos I've ever heard. MJF was just totally, first of all, I thought was great. You know, like him clearly kind of playing the JJ role. I think will will be perfect and it will be him. And, and, and almost serving as like the horseman handing yeah. the mantle over yes. to this group as the link. I love the, that with Tully's the, involvement. The attachment to the legacy to give them that credibility. Like to give them credibility to wear the suits and do that horseman impression. Well, you have an actual horseman there. So it's, he's he will reach his potential in AEW in this role. But man, MJF, his status uh, really continues to be elevated. They've done such a great job with this entire storyline. Uh, by the way, Hansi just informed us that like Cash Wheeler put a video out there of all the times in the past that the, the several members of the of the group have referenced the word pinnacle in their previous promo. So an interview so evidently they've had this name for a while they probably had this idea for a long long time so maybe we have to give them that credit um but now with a stable behind mjf like his voice feels that much more important it feels like it's amplified you have to pay that much more attention to him because he is the leader now he's not just a guy uh i think everybody in the in the group their status has automatically been elevated in this one promo he gave i mean we've already had identities for every single member but like I think calling Sean Spears double S is brilliant. Immediately, it makes me like Sean Spears simply because I can call him double S in a four horseman type of group. Uh, I'm so excited for this direction. It's it's very fresh, and I think it's going to be very big for AEW. Yeah, they've got so much um, story to come out of this. I was so glad the inner circle, they they were off this week. They should be off for a while, I think, until you do that big comeback and it should be unannounced like Jericho storming back. Like it'll be a big deal when he shows up as a baby face for revenge. And I mean, you, you just have so much here. This was, this was tremendous. I thought MJF was just at another level. Um, th- th- this was one of his best performances period in this company. Yes. 
Matt Hardy, Private Party, The Butcher, and The Blade versus Jurassic Express and the 7-in-1 Bear Country. Bear Boulder and Bear Bronson. And right at the beginning, they show the clip of Bear Country eliminating Luchasaurus in the uh, Tag Team Battle Royal and asking, will they all get along? The answer was no. Uh, Marco's stunt was a pinball in this match, just getting thrown around by everybody. He started off with Matt Hardy, and then it escalated into a brawl involving all 10, and the babyfaces cleared the ring, they posed, and then Bear Country lifted up Marco for this hip toss to the floor, and they threw Marco at such a degree that I thought this man was going to be launched into outer space. I thought he was going to land in Raymond James Stadium. It's, uh... Yeah, it was pretty hard. Luchasaurus and Bronson get into an argument. So Marco just tags in, and he's going after Private Party. Uh, but Matt Hardy gets involved, hitting him on the apron. That sets up gin and juice, which the timing was a bit off. Hardy then wants to tag, so he gets in and hit the craziest-looking twist of fate that Marco's stunt looked like he snapped his neck in half. And Matt Hardy pins Marco's stunt and the fallout is between Jurassic Express and Bear Country, who are angry on the floor. And this looks to be where things will go with those two sides. Mm-hmm. I think, um, like, Marco's stunt is so important in a role like this um, because he serves so many purposes here. He was, like, kind of there to not just build Matt Hardy's new stable, uh, but to build Bear Country in their feud against the Jurassic Express. So I think his value is just like so important in this company. And I hope people can understand that. I'm excited for this bear country, you know, to take a, a, a further role. I think a Jurassic Express feud is perfect for them. What, what do you think of this Matt Hardy uh, stable and the character overall? Mm, it, it hasn't done a whole lot for me. I, I don't think it's, it's clicked with me. Um, I see what he's trying to do. I think it's really, I, I think you did need to do some more establishing of, Butcher and the Blade and whether, mm-hmm. you know, the idea is that Matt has hired these guys that have kind of threatened Private Party as Matt's team. And to me, it just feels really jumbled that you have all these weird parts together. And I mean, yeah. the Matt Hardy character to me, it's, I don't know, the big money Matt character, like it's entertaining in bits, but it's it's not to me this gigantic success by any stretch. I think he's very entertaining doing this gimmick. Yes, But I, I do also ask, like, what is the ultimate point of this Matt Hardy stable? I think every stable in AEW, especially if it's being led by a veteran, the goal should be to be elevating the younger guys. And I have to ask, like, has he done that for Private Party? I don't know. Is he going to do that for Butcher and the Blade? Certainly, like, after this match, I got no real sense of Butcher and the Blade, why they decided to turn even who they are like to me, they're just like, you know, two more additions to this putty patrol behind Matt Hardy. And the gimmick I understand is him taking all the credit for like their, you know, his, his, I guess, minions accomplishments. Um, I just hope eventually it pans out and ultimately it's butcher and the blade and private party who are the ones to, you know, be elevated coming off of this. And it's not just a Matt Hardy show, but you know, one one of my other criticisms is just, when you are doing a big stipulation, I think it's not so much just the buildup and delivering the stipulation match. It's selling the consequences of it. And I 
criticized it last week with like Moxley and Omega, but even like this Matt Hardy character, like this big money Matt character just lost all of his money for the quarter. And that's an afterthought. Like there's no, if anything, like this guy went out and he signed two more guys after losing all this. So it was, it begs the question what the point of the stipulation was that Matt Hardy does not appear to have any ill effects of losing all of this. He's big money, man. He's got a lot of it, but you're right. Like, I think, you know, some reduction in, <laughs> you've got to some, acknowledge it. Like it yeah. has to be like he, yes, you're going to do the hangman page skits where he's got all the money, but consequently it's got to be some consequence for Matt Hardy that he's out all this money and adds to play into the story. He should have taken more of private parties pay to make up for his own loss. Moxley and Kingston uh, had the promo together. Moxley isn't in a good mood. He should be on a beach somewhere, and instead, he's going to war. He doesn't like the Good Brothers, not only because he wasted his money buying their pay-per-view, but because they constantly get involved. They make fun of Gallo's eyes, and then they make fun of the two-sweet sign that Eddie says he saw on TNT a long time ago. And then Kingston says, this is our home. This is our place. And to quote 50 Cent, they never popped nothing, shot nothing, so stop fronting. And he asks if they can say Bullet Club. And then Kingston looks in the camera and says that cowards die a thousand deaths, but men like he and Mox, soldiers, only die but once. See you out there. Man, I, I hope they keep quoting 50 Cent just so we can get a compilation of John Pollock 50 Cent <laughs> quote. Dude, by I, the way, I, I could recap Eddie Kingston promos all day. You know, we'll get to this segment, but by the way, I need to give a shout out to the Discord and postwrestling.com slash Discord where Phil Chertok and Brad the Archivist have cooked up the greatest thing ever. It is the John Pollock. Are you aware of this, John? Nope. It is the John Pollock impression bot where if you type in like a certain command, I think it's like <laughs> exclamation mark Jopo, you get... A, a random John Pollock impression like spat out to you by this robot. And it's just amazing. Uh, it's, it's like a just, voice, like an audio clip. There's an audio one, clip of me. Yeah. From one of the many impressions that Brad has collected over the years. It's the greatest. Oh my God. Thing. This thing is incredible. Anyway, postwrestling.com slash discord. Wow. Anyway, it, it's the best. By the way, okay, so back to this segment. Um, this felt like a very improvised promo. Like there were oh, completely, moments, completely. Yeah, it felt very different from your typical pro wrestling backstage segment. And certainly because it's improvised, it was not perfect. You know, not every line hit, not every beat felt like it was there for, with for with any even intended purpose. But it felt natural. And overall, like I really loved these two, two together as sort of this like double anti-hero combo they, they they just look and feel great as a unit um a tag run is perfect for moxley to break off into now that you're kind of done with him chasing the title for a while and you know at the end of all this the inevitability is that one will turn on the other and they'll be doing this whole thing again much more heated than even the first time so i i, I think these two are destined to be like career rivals and in the end what you get is a huge elevation in status for eddie kingston which which is great for everybody. So I didn't love this interview, but I, I definitely am looking more forward to this team. I like the Kingston lines uh, at, at the end. There was there was some stepping on each other in this, but I, I think that that is 
a breath of fresh air at times with some of these these promos. And I think you do have two very strong promos here um, coexisting uh, here. But I think overall, like these two have a chemistry that's undeniable that that really does work. Dasha interviewed Christian Cage. He says in this business, there's a term called workhorse. And you know my reputation as one. Moxley said he thought he knew it all about pro wrestling until he got into the ring with me. I'm not a workhorse, but the workhorse. And he's going to make people remember in case they've forgotten over these past seven years. I'm not this veteran coming in to take everyone's spot. I'm only interested in one spot. That is being AEW champion and tells Kenny Omega he's on borrowed time. He knows he needs to get some wins, but he's in AEW to cement his legacy and outwork everyone. I thought it was a really good first promo from Christian Cage. I like that he addressed the criticism about him being the veteran taking somebody's spot and kind of, you know, twisting those words to work to his advantage. It was like a great kind of like deflecting of, you know, somebody's uh, criticism into something that benefited him afterwards. I think this deserved a bigger stage to make it feel like a bigger deal. I don't know why he didn't do this in in front of a crowd. Um, it's a tape no, show. No fans at this one, right? Yeah, but still, you have the perception of mm-hmm. an audience there. I just think, like, backstage pre-taped kind of diminishes the grandeur a little. But it's a minor complaint, ultimately. How, how, do you, how did it work for you? It was all right. I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, once, once he gets into the ring, I think that's where people are most curious. Uh, this promo, to me, like, he's obviously coming in as a babyface, but I think this is just counting down to whenever this guy can turn and just... Look at the crowd and say how I came here and I outworked everyone. <laughs> Ooh, very nice. Oh, man, I would make that shirt cool. <laughs> He'll get a second second run on those shirts once yeah. the heel turn occurs. The Good Brothers attacked Eddie Kingston on the way to the ring. Um, I will I will backpedal here. Moxley certainly was was playing up the effects of the exploding barbed wire death match here. I mean, he was all taped up. Um, I mean, the man did go through a chair with a one-winged angel, but we will... Uh, it affected his shoulder most, apparently. But he was selling it. They were certainly not uh, omitting that it's he's all, coming in weakened. All those bones are connected. Tendons. So. so they lay out Moxley with a magic killer on the floor, so it begins as a handicap match, and Moxist enter the ring. It's there was just a ton of Moxley selling in this match and trying to help Kingston. Kingston hits an exploder, uh, which led to a historical moment because I'm pretty sure it's the first time that the name Junakiyama has come out of Tony Schiavone's mouth as he cites Eddie Kingston's idol. And he makes the big tag to Moxley. Moxley is in pile driver to Anderson. The stuff with Moxley and Carl was uh, very good here. Hit a tope suicida to Gallows. And then runs right back into the ring and is caught with a spine buster. They set him up for the magic killer. Kingston saves and then sends Gallows to the floor. And Moxley just catches Anderson with an inside cradle, gets the pin. But then the Good Brothers go right back to attacking Moxley and Kingston. But before we get to the post-match, uh, what did you think of the tag match and Moxley and Kingston as a as a duo going forward? I thought this was a great old school tag team match. I thought they set up that injury to, to Mox really well. Great selling from both Mox and Kingston throughout it. Awesome hot tag to Mox. Uh, really like fighting it all with that one arm. Great like 
man, him, he basically play, had to play half dead throughout this entire match and then even the post match as well. I thought Gallows and Anderson did a great job here. Controlling they look very all. good here. I mean, they mm-hmm. conveyed this. This was a fight. And they, like, the facial selling from Moxley was very strong. Kingston is an easily sympathetic baby face in, in this scenario. Like, this worked with, with the four of them for the it style works, that they went with. It worked so well. It, it, and I think, like, you have automatically, like, Kingston and, and Moxley are, are just, to me, it's like Goku and Vegeta. You love seeing them fight. but I had that like, written down. Yeah. <laughs> you, but you kind of like, you know, them doing the fusion dance and, like, becoming, uh, <laughs> you had that written down too, right, John? I, I thought maybe you hold off on that for a few weeks, though, the fusion, <laughs> the fusion dance. dance. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, you just love it when, like, you know, your favorite rivalry might team together against a bigger opponent. And, and, and automatically, they become such a sympathetic pair. And they're so great at acting that way in this match, too. So uh, the booking was great. The performances were great. I just it was a, thought it was a really good tag team match. Yeah. And it's, to me, it's, it's like, a, you know, broken record. But when you have a tag division and you view your tag division as important as any other division... It's a great distraction to take someone like a John Moxley. He's out of the title picture, but mm-hmm. he's into this whole different role. And you think of so many people that can be revitalized by just working as a tag for six months. And then you can, you're reheated and you can go back to the title picture rather than just, you know, you go into obscurity or just are, you know, spinning your tires. Like this is a totally fresh direction for John Moxley. He had talked about this, the idea of, spinning off into a tag team where he thought him and Brody Lee would be a great uh, tag team. So I, I think that Eddie Kingston is the perfect person to put him with. And uh, what you brought up, like if you got to a point where they're going for the tag titles and then they come up short, Eddie Kingston's chance to finally get gold to go show his mother and it's taken away from him. That's the only impetus he needs to fuck over John again. Yeah. Although I hope it doesn't happen for like at least a year. It should be a yeah. long time before we yeah. get to that. Uh, you know, I, I think being able to jump back and forth seamlessly, like, you know, Kenny has been able to, now like Moxley has been able to between the tag and the, and the singles divisions, is one of the great side effects that AEW has created by taking their tag team division seriously. If they were booking their tag team division this entire time as less than, you know, their main main singles division, I wouldn't give a shit about this tag team. I would, certainly wouldn't give a shit about them chasing for the tag, tag team belts that would be meaningless. But because those tag belts mean something, because the tag belts themselves and the division has such a level of prestige on its own that to me is, I'm not going to say it's equal to the singles, but it's like not that far below it. Um, they, I have that level of importance for this run in this team. So they're continuing the attack on Moxley when Kenny Omega comes out with a chair and he sits down in the ring Kingston attacks Omega, knocking him down. They beat Kingston and hit him with the magic killer. And then they wrap the chair around the ankle. And with his son, their ringside, they pilmanize the ankle of Eddie Kingston. Oh, wow. Omega is going nuts. He's shaking the ropes like Jim Helwig. And then they put the chair around Moxley's throat and this prompts the Young Bucks to come out and stop the attack. And they get into a big argument with Omega and the Good Brothers. Omega and Carl and Gallows put the two suite up, but the Bucks leave. And this upsets Omega greatly. 
And Moxley then recovers, gets the chair, and just swings wildly, clearing the ring. They note that Don Callis was so scared he ran completely out of the building. And you've got Eddie Kingston screaming on the floor, Get me into the ring! Get me into the ring! And he's hobbling into the ring with one leg as he's trying to get to Moxley. Um, So, very strong segment, I thought. I thought so, too. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I feel like we're at a point in this Bucks Kenny Omega thing that where we needed some redefinition of where everybody stood, and I thought this this clearly provided that. You have a clear line now between the Bucks and the rest of the, these several people, and uh, it tied in Mox and it tied in Kenny Eddie Kingston along with it. So I thought it this felt like a main event segment on its own, and it just like really worked as like this old school pro wrestling storytelling story. So as, uh, as we go back to the exploding ring, that wasn't, I mean, the idea from that you would assume is that Eddie Kingston is taking the bullet for Moxley. Do you think that this angle kind of was, you know, the, the way to get to the same story. And this is your angle that should take Eddie Kingston out with the ankle. It's still attributed to Omega and the good brothers as it would have been at the pay-per-view, but it's, it's their way to get to the same destination that they were likely heading to. You're probably right. That's a really interesting thing. I, I mean, to tell you how little that explosion ultimately affected me, I didn't think about it once while I was watching this show, that dud of an explosion. Like it, I don't know if that's the case for other people, but like, I I just had no more questions coming out of it. Like I'd moved on. Um, but I think you're right. Certainly, like those two injuries injuries are very different. Um, an explosion and like you know broken ankle. But what do you think? Two weeks, three weeks for either of those things? Well, I think like this this should be treated as like a significant injury. Like the to me, I, I wouldn't be doing an angle like that if it's for nothing. Um. But yeah, it's 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 not getting blown up in a ring. It's uh, an yeah. inconvenience with your ankle. Okay, then we. Okay, <laughs> this might have been the greatest segment in the history of wrestling television. Tony Schiavone welcomes Darby Allen and Sting, and Schiavone is trying to enunciate Darby Allen in the same way he does Sting. Stick to Sting. Like that that works where you elongate the middle portion. It's Darby Allen. Just regular introduction is fine for him. Darby says, I won the TNT title on November the 3rd. And do you know how many times I've defended it? Three times. And everyone cheers. That's amazing. He says, no, no. It's a joke. I've only defended it three times. This was not the reaction he was going for. He wants to be a fighting champion week <laughs> after week. I just thought that was awesome. The crowd was like, that's amazing, man. That's like once a month. And <laughs> he says the Team Taz stuff is over. And he now wants to pay tribute to the greatest TNT champion of all time. They all champ Brody. And he's giving any member of the Dark Order the chance to step up for an open challenge. Then he had said once. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it was a great match. When don't we get another one? (laughs) So Lance Archer interrupts and he asks Tony how many weeks he can interview Sting over and over. It's my time. 
And then he looks at Darby Allen, like this guy, where the hell did he come from? He says, the internet may love you as champion, but to me, you're the most indie-rific joke this business has ever seen. And I'm going to put your ass in a coffin. But then, Jake Roberts takes the mic. <laughs> and, wait, I watched this no less than three times. <laughs> Darby, you better put your bun back on, your hot dog bun, because you're nothing but a weenie, boy. And I could not fathom that I heard this joke. I went and this, you better go back and put your bun back on and then clarifies your hot dog bun, not to confuse with any other buns. Because you're nothing but a weenie. Yeah. This, unfortunately, I think followed a series of pretty good promos. I thought Darby sounded good. I thought Lance Archer sounded really good. Like, he was here intimidating and scary. And then you have Jake Roberts. (laughs) First of all, did he call Darby Allen old man? Did I hear that right? That I missed, but I'm not going to discount that possibility. I, I thought he called Darby Allen Like, I think the idea is, like, Jake is, like, out of his mind. Like, he is incoherent. Is that that the idea? Well, that's... think this is a character? Like, I don't know. He is given some really wacky material. Um, And as we know, like, I shouldn't say given material. Like, this is very much, like, they... These guys are given, like, this latitude to go out there, but... um, we like everybody has great a great deal of reverence for Jake Roberts, um, but I I can't say he's been delivering like in this role with Lance Archer. I don't think Lance Archer needs him. He's a guy who could talk on his own. Um, and I just man, this was weird. This was just not Jake's best promo. He did okay. do better. The, with the the stuff addressing Darby was brutal. When he sh- focused to Sting, I thought I thought this was much better. He just. Simply said, you know, he acknowledged his history with Sting and Tony Khan better realize you don't play with fire. This, referring to Lance, is the biggest, baddest son of a bitch in AEW and he warns everyone it's changing. And Ross mentions that Archer never took his eyes off Sting that whole time. Then Team Taz is out, but Taz gets the mic ripped away by Brian Cage, who says he's speaking tonight and he goes up to Sting and he puts over his performance in the street fight and says, I respect you. And Ricky Starks is wrong. With or without the bat, you are still the icon. And Team Taz is pissed. Cage storms to the back without them. And that was that was the end of this segment. It was like, um, this was a lot of people getting different mic time. And I setting up running- Sting for like a year of matches, I think. I think the running joke is that anytime Sting is set up for an interview with Tony Schiavone, he never gets the chance to. It's speak. open mic night for everyone else. Yeah, uh, I I really like the swerve with Cage. You know, for the first time, we really got to hear him speak. And this felt this was like a babyface turn for Cage. It it's a really interesting dynamic having one guy turn babyface while he is still a part of a heel uh, stable. It adds some depth to him. And I think with Will Hobbs sort of playing that, like, you know, the powerhouse guy on the team now, maybe it's time to break Cage off. I mean, the guy has a, um, 
a style that is just so mm-hmm. babyface. I mean, it's um, yeah. To me, it was well, always he. He should have been the one that eventually breaks away from the group, and it looks like they're going that direction. Coming off of that street fight, I I thought that was like the the thing you think about most is is Brian Cage and all of his amazing spots. They recapped the TNT title match last week with a video built around Scorpio Sky's reaction, and he said how nice guys finish last, and I tried to be the exception, but I failed. I will not be a stepping stone. I'm a wrestling savant, and if he has to, he's going to hurt people. It's cool. Yeah. We, uh, reminds us about the heel turn, establishes it. Let's see where it goes after this. Ray Phoenix took on Angelico, who was uh, going after you know, the lower. Sort sort to cut you off, but like, I think Sean Spears is really good. But I think I would have loved to see Scorpio Sky as my double S in that stable. Oh, uh, I I don't disagree. To me, Sean Spears is the one that I have the most questions about of how he will fare in this group. I mean, I'm open minded about it, but like to your point, it's. I don't know if I'm focusing on Sean Spears for such a pivotal role um, that a Scorpio Sky could could have been in in that spot too. Yeah, that's interesting. You have a lot of guys turning heel and turning babyface all at the same time within a couple weeks here. And uh, I I worry Sky might get lost in that shuffle. Uh, So we'll see what the follow-up would be. Uh, So Phoenix and Helico, it was a short match, uh, but they did a lot here. There was this awesome forward roll into a cutter that looked amazing by Phoenix. And Helico used a Navarro death roll, but Phoenix got to the rope. They traded head kicks. They're balanced on one another. And then a Greco-Roman knuckle lock turns into a crucifix bomb by Phoenix and follows with the driver for the win. And immediately after, Pac just crawls into the ring, getting into Angelico's face. And again, they're pushing uh, their eventual match with the Young Bucks. I think they're doing a good job continuing to build Phoenix here. Um you know, much, and I think Angelico continues to look really great. You know, putting a lot more focus on his Yave submissions, making him stand apart. But you know, his role is really just kind of a setup guy for a lot of people like Phoenix at this point. I really would like to hear maybe more promos from Phoenix and Pack. You know, the way we've started to hear a bit more from Penta, I I think we're just kind of missing a bit more sense of personality. And we have the in ring. The in ring is fantastic, but I think what's missing is just a bit of personality from Phoenix. Alex Marvez asks Miro about the challenge laid out by Charles and Orange Cassidy for one more match. And Miro just looks at him. Why? He's over it. He is moving on. But Kip Sabian shows up. He has not moved on because those two ruined my wedding. And says Miro is partially to blame for Penelope ending up in the cake. Miro says the worst thing for your career is having your wife ringside. Miro only cares about his destiny He needs to be world champion. Outside the ring, we are still buds. And he walks off, and Kip Sabian tells Marvez that they're accepting the rematch. I guess against Nero's wishes. Really like that line about um, the the worst thing you can have for your career is to have your wife ringside. Really good. I thought this was like probably Nero's best speaking appearance since his AEW debut. He was serious here. He spoke logically about, I think, a pretty complex feeling in his relationship with Kip. He... He revealed to the audience that his goal is to win the championship, even at the expense of their friendship. There's no bullshit about video games or Twitch in, in this. It was just like a, a, a deeper, kind of more serious bureau than we've had before. 
Well, we're building to a match where there will be video game consoles surrounding the ring. So we're definitely going to bring it back to the consistency that the story has provided. Next week, they announced a title eliminator match between Kenny Omega and Matt Seidel that was set up on Elevation. Nyla Rose versus... Did you, did you see the Tony Khan thing in, from Elevation? Uh, I did. I did see the promo, yes. Yeah, what did you think? Um, I mean, it wasn't great. It was pretty awful, and I like from. It was pretty awful from Tony Khan. It was pretty awful from Kenny as well, and I just, man, I do wonder if they're just goofing off because it's dark. Probably at the end of like an eight-hour taping or something, and they're just like came out and improvised. Like it was definitely Tony Khan playing up sort of like a slapstick, you know, Impact commercial version of himself. Mm-hmm. That's what and, I felt. He felt like the Impact character. But yeah. almost, but a babyface version of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and so I'm just, you know, I I think it remains to be for me, like I'm a little confused about what to think about dark or even dark elevation at this point. Is it just kind of BTE style, not to be taken seriously, not in canon, or at least like half in canon, or are these consistent characters throughout? Yeah, I I will say now that the first episode is done and we saw the attention given on tonight's show to it, like they did bring up like the angle coming out of it, but um I, I didn't think they did a great rollout of, of elevation to make it seem like any kind of necessity to be watching. Like not even like was Paul White's name even mentioned on Dynamite tonight that hey, he's on commentary next week, it's this brand new show of elevation and this is what you missed. It was like we got the usual crawl with the results, but like, I just, I'm questioning, like, what what these two hours are on, on Monday that well, it feels I, like it's it's four hours of dark you have now. I think what it is is developmental for AEW, and it's a chance to get the talent that they have that, in attendance to work, to, I guess, make a, make a payday, but also to get experience in front of a camera. It's a chance for Paul White to get experience. It's developmental for him, and it's to me like something that you watch if it's not mandatory but if you want to kind of have a deeper knowledge of like the people on deck in AEW then it's there so next week uh Omega Seidel Nyla Rose versus Ty Conti FTR and Sean Spears against the Varsity Blondes and Dante Martin Darby's open challenge uh which they go to uh Marvez backstage he's with the Dark Order uh, minus one wants to take the open challenge, but they say maybe in a decade because you're only nine and they nominate John Silver. So it'll be Darby Allen and John Silver next week. Yeah. Did you, probably... hear that they, did you hear that they had to, well, I don't know this for a fact, but they deleted Dark after it aired, uh, or at least they took it off of their YouTube page for like a few hours after it aired. Because, and I don't know if this is confirmed or not, but there was a match involving 10 where he got busted up and there was a lot of blood and, you know, ended up doing like a bit of a pose down at the end with negative one in the ring with him. So while he was bleeding. Yeah. Like oh. face full of blood, like kind of like, you know, like, um, did the whole fist bump thing with a bloody fist. And I, I, I don't know if that, that might've been the reason or not, but I can't really think of another why mm. they would have done that. Yeah, I, w- I would say the blood on its own. I, I don't think that would be uh, a, a deal breaker given what we're about to review. Um, but maybe I, I, I was not aware of that. So I, I, I don't know. But but it's back up now. So apparently there are uh, people in the chat are saying they also edited out the C- Caesar Bononi Luchasaurus match. 
Okay. Anyway. Uh, the Pinnacle then took over the Inner Circle's locker room. And then we go to the Lights Out unsanctioned match as Justin Roberts explains that this ends the sanctioned portion of Dynamite. The lights will go out and thus it will be unsanctioned. So we have Dr. Britt Baker and Thunder Rosa in a match that is probably going to be remembered for a long time. Uh, Rebel, who had a very heavy involvement in this match, immediately attacks Thunder Rosa from behind with a crutch, and then Baker spears her onto the stage, hits an air raid crash, and then gets a chair out. Uh, we several times went backstage where Hikaru Shida is watching on. Uh, Thunder Rosa took over the chair, threw it at Baker's face, and then she takes out Rebel. Uh, they fought into the crowd, and then... Thunder Rosa gets set up on the steps and Baker hits a curb stomp and this caused Thunder Rosa to start bleeding. Uh, there's all these chairs that fill up the ring. We come back from the break and Baker hits a superplex, sending Thunder Rosa and herself onto all of these chairs that are set up. Rebel tosses a ladder into the ring and Thunder Rosa sends Baker face first into the ladder followed by a running sit-out dropkick, sending the ladder into Baker, and she is bleeding all over the place. This was an incredible amount of blood that she was, uh, that was coming out of her forehead. More than um, the time she broke her nose? Definitely, yes. Yeah. This was a match that, I believe it was the last Lights Out match when they did it with Moxley and Omega, which was on a pay-per-view, that... Tony Khan had said at the time, like, this is the kind of stuff you will not see on Dynamite. So obviously this has been, you know, we have seen some pretty violent stuff on on Dynamite. This would be up there just in terms of graphic violence. Uh, oh, my play. God. Like, it was partway through this match that I, I realized how unpre unprecedented it was for them to not only put a match uh, of this nature on TV, but one involving two women on TNT. Uh, so, it, it, you know, I don't know if this this was always, like... You know, they were always free to do it or if it was something that maybe AEW had to kind of establish themselves in order to prove that they could do properly. But uh, it was definitely new and different. Uh, definitely. I, th I think, um, you know, having having women go out and do this type of match, it it's going to be new for a lot of people. And I'm and, and I don't think it's fair. But there are going to be people that are more squeamish because it's women. And I don't agree with that. Uh, assessment but that will be some people's reaction to this because it's it's not something you see all that often watching north american wrestling on television they this incredible shot this will be the image of this match was the camera on baker who just finds the camera and smiles into it covered in blood this was her austin moment Totally, yeah. I mean, she is really good at this, whether or not she's like intentionally doing it or not. She must be intentionally doing it. She's so smart. She did this when she had that with nose. With the nose, thing. yeah. Yeah. So doing it the same with this close-up, definitely iconic, yeah. She gets the glove and then is handed a bag of thumbtacks that she pours over the over the ring. Rebel misses with a crutch. Thunder Rosa nails her with it and then drop kicks Rebel off the apron, sending her through a table on the floor. She battles back with Baker, leading to Baker being powerbombed onto the thumbtacks for a two count. Baker recovers, applies lockjaw, and then Baker rolls, or sorry, Thunder Rosa rolls Baker onto the thumbtacks 
to force her to let go of the lockjaw, which was an incredible spot. She breaks free. They go to the edge of the apron where Thunder Rosa hits a fire thunder driver, sending Baker through a table on the floor for the pinfall. An unbelievable match that these two will always be linked to this match. This is going to be, I think, one of the defining matches of these two women's careers. And one of the biggest dynamite main events I think they have had. And the fact that it is, you know, two women headlining the show in this type of match, it's going to be remembered for a long time. I've been a big fan of these two in this feud. I think all of their interactions, maybe say for uh, that one dentist office segment, all their interactions have been great. Um, they they have wonderful chemistry, just, you know, getting physical with with each other, other cutting promos on one another. Uh, I was looking forward to this match. I did not expect this. I did not expect this on the spring St. Patrick's slam edition of AEW dynamite. This to me came out of nowhere. You know, with that barbed wire match, any sort of death matches that they built up to, at least I've had time to anticipate. I did not expect this level of violence for this match on a TV show. It, it was one of the most violent matches AEW has ever done. Certainly one of the most violent women's matches I've ever seen period. And I have to say, I think this was one of the best AEW matches I've seen. They more than delivered on, you know, the expectations um, after a great feud. And Which then, are high. And- like, the Lights Out match has been established as, like, the most violent match that a, a feud culminates to in AEW. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, lived up to those expectations of main eventing a show and lived up to the expectations of ending a feud. Well, hopefully this would be the end of this feud. I don't see how they can go on, like, to another one after this. Yeah. Like, thumbtacks, you know, like, and, and everything else that they've done. The amount of blood that was shed from both of them. And the um, length they got. Like, this was, like, 20 minutes or so. I think this this uh, match is going to kill it in the numbers uh, when we get the quarters. I think that anyone flipping back and forth is not leaving from this. Like visually, this is a match that was going to capture people. Yeah. You know, reportedly this match got a standing ovation from um, the locker room backstage afterwards. And I can completely understand why. And it just certainly elevates the two of them and the women's division in AEW to another level. Yeah. Uh, Like there's nothing to me close. Like this is the, this is the biggest women's match in AEW history. Yes. Yeah, so this was a huge success, in my uh, opinion. Uh, there are going to be some that probably are turned off by the violence, but this was, to me, as advertised. Uh, maybe you didn't think they would go to this level on television, I but I, I think it tells you where um, TNT is obviously comfortable with AEW going uh, violence-wise on television because this is high up there of like the most violent things that you have seen from AEW, pay-per-view or not. This is this is up there. Well, there's only one way I think to top this. Exploding barbed wire death match. Got to. Yeah, but once the cl- the clock hits 5 seconds, that's when Tony can bust out his more famous line. We got to go. <laughs> you never see it. Maybe they could do a laughing gas or uh what is it? Uh what do they call the gas that you give? Yeah, it's laughing gas, right? What do they give the? What I, gas I don't know what this has to do with a pro wrestling match. Well, but. no, the, the dentist, the dentist thing. Oh, oh, I see. Well, the Britt Baker big swole match inside the dental office was uh, something 
Uh, I was not laughing as I watched that. I wish I could, but it was something I don't need to see repeated. I don't think any more matches need to take place inside a dental office. I agree. So that was Dynamite. Uh, another huge main event from Dynamite. I think if you go back and look at the, the main events that Dynamite has produced in the first uh, two and a half months of the year, they've been pretty spectacular, pretty pretty often. I agree. This was, uh, I thought, a really good show. Between the main event, between the Moxley-Kingston tag match, I think Cody versus uh, Penta was really good. And then that amazing that MJF, MJF promo was oh unbelievable. Yeah, this was yeah, this fantastic. was a really great show, I thought. Mm-hmm. The forum gave this one an 8 out of 10. Um, so let's go through some feedback. Andrew from Cape Breton. I was thinking tonight was going to be the standard fare of good matches and storytelling from the show, but the main event over-delivered. Blood and wrestling has become incredibly rare, and nights like tonight are why it should continue to be the case. You don't see this often on television, and it's never done with the women. Thunder Rosa and Britt Baker had a star-making performance, and speaking of stars, Jade Cargill is like a more athletic and more charismatic Let's Luger. I'm surprised she wasn't looked at by WWE, as she looks like someone Vince McMahon would see and go, Goddamn, pal, just look at her. But yeah, excellent show. Only negative is Sting gets another interview and it feels like he's being shoehorned in every week. A 9 out of 10 from Andrew. Did she not have um, any involvement in that system? Uh, With Jade Cargill? I mean, there had been that story that they had passed on signing her. I believe that was the story that had come out. Yeah, interesting. All right, we got Johnny who says... I like the in-ring action, but some of their decisions on who wins seem bad. It feels like both the Good Brothers and Penta should have won their their matches. Have them win and still beat down their opponents after the match. Especially if the Good Brothers will be challenging the Bucks for them titles down the road. Solid promo segment from Christian helping reinforce the rankings and great production for the Pinnacle. But that main event was awesome. Glad AEW uses that stipulation very sparingly because when they do, it feels special. Uh, we go to Jesse from the six. Both wrestlers killed it in the main event. That's not the kind of match I want to see very often, but tonight I was very impressed. I hope the ACDC Thunder crowd chant catches on for Thunder Rosa. I think that will uh, when crowds come back. I'm not trying to yuck your yum because I know y'all like Darby, but I want to go on record as saying I think he's a dork. I don't find him interesting, and he needs to learn the difference between much and many. Uh, that is a very unique criticism. Uh do you think AEW is playing too fast and loose with their heels and baby faces? I know WWE has been all over the place during the pandemic, but now it seems AEW is getting lazy too. Penta recently turned face, and while Pac and Phoenix are faces, Penta is heel again. Archer was a baby face for all of three weeks. There's the untold Eddie Kingston and Butcher and Blade split, and now Brian Cage is turning face too. It seems sloppy to me. I don't disagree about some of these things because, like, um, we, you know, Butcher and Blade, they've they've like uh jesse says they i really think they should be more follow-up even if it's on dark you have plenty of time on those things even if it's on bte give me some reason why they're no longer together and i I was definitely asking myself if penta was a part of death triangle anymore after this because they didn't come out to save him and i could understand like penta being a character that doesn't need help but heel and baby faces baby baby face dynamics i think deserve some level of like you know, cohesive storytelling backstage, some identifying. If your audience is thinking about it, um, I think it needs to be addressed. We got Andrew from St. John who says, the main event was brutal, had great pace, and made Britt Baker and Thunder Rosa look like absolute badasses. Interesting to see where this takes them from here, 
but the point more than the title picture was the match. First Dynamite with two women's matches since December 2019, and hopefully the next one isn't too long away. It's fine to have a squash if that isn't the only match on the show. Ray versus Angelico, Cody Penta, and Mox Kingston, who have great chemistry, versus Good Brothers were great. Sort of a damp run-in from the Bucks. Could have brought in Finn Juice for Irish content. 9 out of 10. You think that'll happen? Uh, they they could not have brought uh, Finn Juice because um, they're in Japan. Japan. Next is Nick from Boston. There was so much to love about the show. I could rave about the amazing promo work alone, but there was plenty of great wrestling sprinkled in as well. Don Callis has had an outstanding break. An outstanding week. His segment with Rich Swan on Impact was a masterpiece, and his attempt to corrupt the Young Bucks was effective tonight. MJF introducing the pinnacle was equally skillful, and having Tully as another mouthpiece for the group will help keep their promo segments fresh. Brian Cage striking out on his own feels right, especially given his spotlight in the Sting match, and Darby refocusing on his title reign will be crucial for Dynamite as a whole. The main event ruled. Easily the best women's match AEW has put on to date, and one of the best ever Dynamite matches in general. 9 out of 10. Raymond from Sacramento. That was a great show with a tremendous main event. Well-built feud culminating at least for now with a lights-out match for all to see. Thunder Rosa and Baker earned the headline spot and they over-delivered in the ring. Remember this match for the Best of the Year award. Go to Muggin who says that Britt Baker, Thunder Rosa, and the AW Women's Division got the breakout match it's been looking for with this lights-out encounter. It's a case study for why women's non-title feuds need to be more of a thing. Britt loses nothing. Rankings be damned. Both her and Thunder Rosa's stock have risen dramatically. I wouldn't be surprised if it's in the conversation for match of the year. Hats off to both ladies. Finally, we got a Kate who says, The main event tonight was unreal. It's the sort of match that women just don't ever have on television, and with a lot of pressure on them, Britt and Rosa absolutely delivered. It more than justified its position as the main event. The two of them need further other storylines now, but they should meet again in the not-too-distant future because they have great chemistry. Between this and the impressive squash by Jade Cargill, the AEW women's division seems like it's very much on the right track. I was happy to see the acknowledgement that Darby hasn't defended his TNT title enough and they want to get back to having it be a working championship. Darby versus Silver will be a quality match and I can see Lance Archer ultimately being the next champion. Although I suspect that we're getting another round of Cody versus Penta, I wasn't crazy about the surprise roll-up, especially since it was used twice twice tonight. Uh, Penta seemed to have momentum and this week it felt like it stalled him a bit. Looking back, the night really belonged to the women. 8.5 out of 10. All right. Thanks, everybody, for the feedback, and thanks to all of you for joining us live for Rewind to Dynamite in the Zoom room. We're going to be back on Friday night with Rewind to SmackDown. That's when I'll be back, but you'll hear plenty of way in between because 3 o'clock Eastern, Thursday afternoon, it's the wellness policy with Way and Jordan Goodman. So I hope people check that out, and then it'll be out free Friday? Friday morning, yeah. But, uh, of course, if you're looking for something uh, to listen to on the British Wrestling Experience feed, we've, they've got the Sting Roundtable with Martin, Nate, and Chris from L.A. So look forward to all that and everything else we got coming up this weekend. All right. So go check out all of that. Uh, once again, everyone, post-podcast day is happening Saturday, April the 3rd. If you missed the news on Monday, uh, we've added two more shows to post-podcast day with the Up Next crew of Braden and Davey, who will be going through... The worst WrestleMania matches ever. And then the aforementioned Nate Milton will convene with Chris from LA and Andrew Thompson. The Nubian wrestling advocates are joining post podcast day, which also includes a special edition of the British wrestling experience and a live ask away. It all happens 
April 3rd, noon Eastern time for all members at all levels of the Post Wrestling Cafe. And go to the Discord. Use the John Pollock impressions bot, please. That is it for us. Good night. Thank you for listening.